This morning we'll look at Colossians 1, verses 15 through 23. And uh, before we get into the text, let's open with a word of prayer. Father, thank you so much for the privilege it is to be gathered around your word. Well, thank you for the life that you bring. Thank you for the hope, Lord, that we have as we, we, Lord, explore your word today. We ask that you would bring it to life, that you'd help us to engage it as if our very lives depended on it. The Lord, we would um, see in it, Lord, uh, the beauty of who, Father, who you are in the face of Jesus, that Jesus, uh, Lord, in all of his glory and splendor, Father, would just come alive to us this morning, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. Have you ever watched a potter center a lump of clay on the potter's wheel? I mean, it's crucial for the clay to be centered or the entire uh, vessel will either be lopsided or it'll be actually just fall apart, fall off the wheel. In, in one of the most beautiful poems I believe ever written about Jesus, Colossians chapter, chapter 1, verses 15 through 23 It has a centering effect on everyone who reads it. Like that potter who centers the lump of clay on the wheel, uh, Jesus has a way, uh, God has a way of centering us again and again uh, in Christ so that we would treasure him more and more. And that's exactly what we we find happening in this passage. It, It happens to us. We need to be centered again and again so we will treasure Jesus more and more. Because we're all tempted to try to earn or add to or pursue something beyond Jesus. We are. What happens when we begin to believe Jesus isn't enough? It's a subtle shift. The temptation is to look to other things to satisfy. But Jesus' supremacy and his sufficiency, they are the best protection against this error. They are absolutely the best protection against this error. They are the greatest remedy to our seemingly endless search for meaning and hope outside of Christ. And so here we have a beautiful confessional statement. It's, It's... Really, many believe it's the first or the earliest uh, hymn of its kind. What it is is a breathtaking description of Jesus, and I can't wait to read it, so let's get into it. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish, and free from accusation, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. 
Paul wasn't writing this letter as a document to be interpreted by a select group of people with an in-depth knowledge that no one else had. But instead, he's writing it as something he knew would be read out loud as part of the church's worship. The people of Colossae who gathered, who were the church community, the Colossians, they were people just like you and me. And Paul knew that this letter would be read publicly as an expression of worship. What did the Colossians need more than anything else in order to guard against this false teaching that some had begun to embrace? They needed to know who Jesus really was. They needed to know what Jesus had truly accomplished for them. They needed to be reminded of these things. They needed these things brought front and center again. We're going to look at three things here in this text Number one, Jesus is. Number two, Jesus has. And number three, you must. First, Jesus is. Remember who Jesus is and never move away from it. Jesus is. Jesus is is what? Colossians 1, verses 15 through 20. It's clear. Jesus is supreme over all creation. It's what Paul's telling us, telling the Colossians. And when I say supreme, I mean superior to everything and everyone else preeminent no greater authority no greater power found jesus is supreme over all creation verse 15 tells us that jesus is the image of the invisible god now image expresses two ideas first the first idea is is likeness like jesus is the exact likeness of god like the image on a coin uh, or the reflection in a mirror the second idea is that of manifestation The nature or very being of God is perfectly revealed in Jesus. Jesus is the image of the invisible God. Just think of that for a moment. And this is why Paul could confidently say, like in 2 Corinthians verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 6, where he writes to the Corinthians, he says, For God who said, let light shine out of darkness... In other words, the God who created all things, He made His light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. Where? In the face of Christ. We see the glory, the splendor, the majesty of who God is. Where? In the face of Christ. That's where. So if a person wants to know what God is like, look to Jesus. You want to know what God is like, look to Jesus. He is the image of of the invisible God. Jesus is a direct reflection of God the Father. Look with me in John chapter 1. The Apostle John who walked with Jesus in his ministry was very close to him. This is what he writes of Jesus in John chapter 1 beginning in verse 1. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and The Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him, all things were made. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. In Him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Look with me in verse 14 of that same chapter. Now the Word, he says, the Word, the Word became flesh 
and he made his dwelling among us. The word dwelling, it's, it's like he encamped among us. The word is like tabernacled. He, he made his dwelling. His, he was present with us. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. Now go down to verse 18. No one has ever seen God. No one has ever seen him. But the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closer, closest relationship with the Father has made him known. Okay. We're in some deep waters here. Some deep theological waters. Here we have the plurality of the persons within the union of the Godhead. We have the Trinity just coming to bear. We're starting to see God is one expressed in three. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But what we're seeing here in Colossians chapter 1 and in John 1, that whatever belongs to God is present in Jesus. Hebrews chapter 1. We have another witness, another testimony of this fact. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days... He has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom also he made the universe. Check this out. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Every month, millions of people type questions like, Who is Jesus? into online search bars. Online search engines. Who is Jesus? Millions of people. They're looking for answers. I don't know where you are today. Maybe you've been typing those, those questions into Google. Maybe you're here, you're looking for answers. Maybe... Um, you once embraced Jesus as a child. You, you know, maybe you were forced to go to church. I don't know why you're here. But the Bible is crystal clear on who Jesus is, and I'm so glad you're here. And I, I want you to hear from the source. I, I want you to know uh, what a follower of Christ believes about Jesus. It's so important that we who, who say we follow Jesus know who he is. Really, who is he? He is the image of the invisible God is who he is. In verse 15, it tells us he is the firstborn over all creation. Now, that doesn't speak of the beginning of Jesus. He's always been. What this means is that Jesus is before and over all creation. So this speaks of his authority and his preeminence, his power and rule. Let me explain. The firstborn has rights and privileges that aren't shared by anyone else. And firstborn is a, a messianic title. It was given to David in Psalm 89, verse 27. It, it, a recognized title of the Davidic king. A title of honor. A title of status. A title of preeminence and power and authority. You're the firstborn. You have the full rights, is what it's saying. The pre-existent Jesus was not created. He's eternal. 
He is the firstborn over all creation. And when the cults come knocking to the door and they tell me that Jesus was created and they go right to this passage, he was, oh, see, he was born. Well, yes, Jesus, the man, him, he was born. I, I get it. Luke chapter 2, we see it. He was born. Uh, we understand that he, he became, he took on the stuff we're made of, right? But he's always been. John, John tells us, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. The Word was God. He's the creator and the sustainer of all things. Jesus is creator of all things, verse 16 of Colossians 1. He wasn't created if he's the creator. The uncreated one created all things. It was by him and it's for him. He is the beginning and the end. He's the goal of all things. We get a little glimpse of that in the colorful book of Revelation 22, verse 13. Jesus, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. That's what Jesus says. He also says this in chapter 1, verse 8 of Revelation. He, he is... Who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. That, that's who Jesus is. Now, we, we've only scratched the surface so far in Colossians 1, 15 through 23. I mean, we've only scratched the surface. And our minds are already just blowing up, right? It's okay. All creation owes its existence to Jesus. Without Him, it would have no ultimate value or meaning and neither would we. Verse 17 of Colossians 1, we, we see that Jesus is eternal. He's endless. He's timeless. He's always been. He has no beginning and will have no end. We see that Jesus holds all things together. He's the sustainer of all things. He, he holds us together. Your breath in your lungs, your heart's beating. He's holding you together. But everything in all creation is, is held together, we're told, by Jesus himself. So we see that Jesus is supreme over all creation. We also learn that Jesus is supreme over new creation. Now, what do I mean by that? In verses 18 through 20, uh, this beautiful poem, which uh, that's really what it is. It's, it's like a hymn. I don't know if they sang it. I don't know if they recited it or what. But this section is so powerful. And he, he's getting into the fact that Jesus is over creation, but now he gets into new creation. In other words, verse 18, Jesus is the head of the church. Now, the church is the new creation. We are new creations in Christ Jesus. Anyone who's in Christ is a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. So this new creation that, that, that God brings in Christ begins in our hearts. Begins here. Now, one day, all of creation will be made new. One day, sin will be eradicated and done away with, and the cross is a guarantee of that reality. The cross and the resurrection. Jesus is the head of the church, verse 18 says. Now, we're referred to as the body of Christ throughout Scripture. Now, a body can't do anything without a head. At least, last I checked. Church means Assembly. We're the redeemed people of God. We're trusting in His provision. We're joined to one another. We're family. We are the body of Christ. Think of this. We're the primary chosen means through which Jesus is going to carry out His purposes. 
You might have heard it put this way. We're the hands and feet of Christ. Now, this union between Jesus and his church is an intimate one. You can imagine so if he's the head and we're the body. In John 15, when Jesus was still ministering, he was, he was on the earth and, and he, was, he was with his disciples one, before his, uh, his death, he said, listen, apart from me, you can do nothing. Abide in me. Abide in me. What is this? This is this fellowship, this sweet union. Apart from me, he says, you can do nothing. He is our head. We are his body. What a privilege. And so you think about church. It's, it's so not about seeing our gathering as an event to go to and then just leave and then go to and sit around people who go to the same event. No, it's, that's not it at all. It's so much bigger than that, so much more beautiful than that. We're family. We're on mission together. We're the body of Christ. We all have different gifts that we, we bring and, 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 and we're, we're using our energy and our gifts for his glory with what time he gives us on this earth to live as a light for his glory. We're on mission together in this city, in this Bay Area. It's where he's put us. Jesus is the head. Jesus is the beginning. He's the firstborn from among the dead. We learned he's the firstborn before, but now Paul is saying he's the firstborn among the dead. So this speaks of his supremacy over death itself. He's the first. He's the beginning. He's the origin of this new creation. He possesses resurrection life. And now listen, the resurrection life that he has is something he shares with what? With us. Through our union with him, we experience resurrection life. Now, this new life has begun in Christ Jesus. We, we experience a newness of life. Uh, in a couple weeks, we'll learn that we, we were dead, but now we're alive. We were dead in sin, but now we're alive, truly alive in Christ. We have resurrection life. It's for now, and it is forever. It's life. Forever life in Christ. Now, verse 19, Jesus is uh, the place of God's presence. He's the, the, the place of God's dwelling. We, we know this. We've heard the term Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's who, God, that's who Jesus is. We learned in John 1, verse 14, that he tabernacled. He, he dwelt among us. The fullness, the totality of divine power and attributes dwelt among us. Not 50% man and 50% God, like, like some Marvel superhero. That's not who Jesus is. It's all that God is dwells in Jesus. Look at chapter 2 in Colossians verse 9. Very clear. For in Christ, all the fullness, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, not 50-50. Verse 20 of chapter 1, we learn the whole universe, material and spiritual, will be reconciled. What's going on here? Let's read it again. Now we got to back up. Paul in his long sentences. Let's go. (laughs) Verse 19. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things whether things on earth or things in heaven, that's everything, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Oh, the cross accomplished something 
so beautiful for us. It's so big, though. It's so, so big. It's so glorious. He speaks of this reconciliation that has happened. Reconcile means to change completely, to remove all enmity, all hostility. We're reconciled to God through Jesus. Brought into a real, living, breathing relationship with the living God. That's something. But what's a guarantee in this? When he speaks of all material and spiritual things being reconciled, disorder will be done away with. Harmony will be restored. Right now, we're living in a well, in an off-key world. I mean, there's a lot of disharmony. We're singing a song and it's off-key. But not forever. It won't be that way forever. There's this longing in our hearts for what will be. Paul writes to the Romans that creation itself is groaning and longing and looking forward to that day. And how we are too. But we have the first fruits of that resurrection life in us through Christ, through salvation, through this living relationship with God. But there's that promise of something big. It's coming. All creation. Here this poem is written in a way that forces us to make comparison. The first half of the poem declares Jesus is supreme over all creation. The second half explains how the one who created you is the one who makes you into new creation. It's all-encompassing. So what does this mean for us? If Jesus is the image of the invisible God and the fullness of God dwells in Jesus, then the Colossians, they won't find fullness in anything else. They're going to be looking for other things, and they have been, uh, as Paul writes to them, he's concerned that they've drifted away from the centrality and the supremacy and the sufficiency of all that Jesus is for them. They're looking to other teachers and other ideas, and don't think for a minute we're not tempted to do the same. But if Jesus is these things, we're not going to find fulfillment or fullness anywhere else. Nowhere else. If God the Father provided the Son to reconcile the Colossians, they don't need another salvation plan, and they won't find peace or reconciliation through anything else, through heavenly visions or asceticism or anything else, through angels. We'll learn of what they were tempted to lean on and look to besides Jesus in the uh, upcoming weeks. But listen, you and I, it's the same for us. We are not going to find any other means of salvation or reconciliation with God. It's been provided And since Jesus is the head of his body, the church, then anyone who loses connection with the head is in serious danger. It's not good to lose your head. It's not good to move away from the centrality of Christ. Any church that does it is in danger. All these peripheral things become central. Churches that move away from the centrality of Jesus start to focus on things that aren't meant to be at the center. And it's dangerous. And it's not just dangerous for other churches. It's dangerous for us. We need to be concerned about staying centered on Christ. If Jesus sustains the entire universe, guess what that means for you? He sustains you. He's got you. He's holding you together. He's aware of what you're facing. If Jesus rules over all things and will reconcile all things, then every part of your life should come under his rule. And it should give you confidence in the good, the bad, and the ugly of life, that he's got you. He's going to reconcile all things. Jesus is enough. 
Jesus is. Second, Jesus has. Recognize what God has done for you in Christ and never move away from it. Never. Paul moves on in verse 21 and gets very personal, as it should be personal. In verse 21, he speaks of them being alienated. He says, once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body. Well, he's getting, he's getting personal. He speaks of being alienated. Well, what does this mean? He's reminding the Colossians of what their, their reality was pre-Jesus. Before Jesus came into their life, he's saying, you were alienated. This involved isolation and loneliness and a deep sense of not belonging. It involved separation from God. It involved an endless pursuit of happiness and meaning and belonging. That's what it involved. He's saying, do you remember? Do you remember how it felt? You were alienated, separated from him. Enemies. The language can't get stronger. Because of your evil behavior, that's what you were. But now, he's reconciled you. How? How has he done that? How has he made things right? How has he made things right without compromising his holiness? How could he forgive me, an unholy rebel? How could he make me right in his eyes? He did it through the cross. He did it through the work of Jesus. Where Jesus became sin for you and me. Oh, our sin was punished in Christ. The idea here, as he writes, is that if we've experienced this reconciliation with God, he's like, you just can't sit back and do nothing. And, and listen, we don't twist arms, we don't manipulate, we don't try to create some sort of spiritual experience for someone. You know what we do? We declare new creation has come in Christ. You want that? You want to know who God is? I'd love for you to know. I'd love for you to experience the reality of who Jesus really is and what it means for your life. There's hope, there's life, there's meaning, there's purpose, there's joy. This is what we were made for. You're invited to share in that. We're not going around twisting people's arms or trying to manipulate them or somehow get the atmosphere right so that they'll make a decision to follow Jesus. No, no, listen. What it comes down to is seeing Jesus in all his beauty and bowing your life to him and saying, all right, I surrender. I belong to you. You created me. You sustained me. I'm yours. So there's an implied astonishment that the Colossians would look anywhere else to, uh, than Jesus. You know, like children who are angry because they've been asked to come inside for dinner, but they're outside all hot and sweaty, having a good time. But they're, they're mad. They're mad. You've invited them to come in, and what they don't know is that there's a wonderful meal for them to participate in with cupcakes to follow. But they're just stomping their feet, you know, and they've got to get clean and take a shower. Oh, my. Yes, every day. Every day. It's like a surprise every time. You're going to shower? What? Again? Yes. Yes, again. Tomorrow's going to be the same thing. So here they are. They get to feast at this table. But first, they're just angry and pouting and thinking they're missing out on something better outside. 
That's how it can feel. I mean, but with, with us, when we, we, we speak of Jesus to others, listen, we're not pulling you away from something that's better. We're inviting you into something that is, is so glorious and so good and what you were created for. Uh, we need this passage as much as the Colossians did. Don't think for a second we aren't tempted uh, in the very same way that they were. We, we are tempted to earn or add to or pursue something beyond Jesus. But what Paul is saying is, listen, see the beauty of Jesus. See him for who he is. Don't move away from it. See who he is and see what he has done for you. Don't move away from it. So let's ask God to help us to see Jesus for who he is. Let's ask God to help us to see Jesus for all that he's accomplished for us. Let's pray that right now. We're not done, but we're going to pray. Father, we pray that you would turn our life away from worthless things. We pray that you would begin to work in our hearts in ways that maybe you haven't before or maybe you haven't in a long time, that Jesus would be seen for really who he is and what he's done. And when we begin to panic or to believe lies that you aren't enough or that Jesus isn't enough, God, would you turn our hearts towards this poem in Colossians 1? Would you remind us of the supremacy and sufficiency of Jesus and that he is enough? Oh God, we ask you these things for our good and your glory. Amen. Listen, the result of Jesus' work on the cross is God's presentation of the Colossians. God's presentation of the Colossians as in verse 22, holy in his sight, without blemish. These are sacrificial terms now. Without blemish, free from accusation. Oh, get that. Without blemish, free from accusation. No one has anything on you. Nothing. You can come up with all kinds of things that might, might you think would disqualify you. And they would. They would disqualify you. And they do. But not now that you're in Christ. And now that you're in Christ, there, there is no accusation that could be held against you. You're without blemish. You're free from accusation. And he, it says God presents you this way. So you're brought into God's presence, no longer stained by sin. So what more could be gained? What more could be done for you? What could be given? What do we lack? And we should be asking as we read this, who am I that I would be welcomed into a relationship with God this way? Humbled by his grace. Finally, you must. Well, you must what? You must continue in this. Continue in what? Don't shift from the hope held out in the gospel. Don't move away from who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for you. You must. You must hold on to these things. This is our lifeline. This is our hope. This is our foundation. We sang about it this morning. Don't walk away from this indifferent. It means centering our lives on this. And there is confidence. I mean, we read this in our English translations, but really when you look at the language, there's a confidence that Paul has that the Colossians won't move away from this. So he's not doubting that they're going to move away, but there is a challenge there. The idea is that Paul is expecting them to be all in. He expects them to be all in. And this really gets to the heart of the letter. He is warning them and he's encouraging them. He's like, listen, don't move away from this. It's like when you're, you, you, you expect something from your child, and maybe it's their first day of school, or you've trained them to do something, and now it's go time, and they got to do it on their own, and you're just like on your knee, and you're like, you're like trying to encourage them, and you're just looking at them in the eyes. You're like, you got this. Now, 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 now you go do this. 
do this. You've got this. And Paul's saying, don't move away from this. Don't shift. You've got to hold on to this. There is a responsibility on your part. Paul wanted the Colossians to have steadfast resolve. Now, I want that for you. I don't want you to shift. I don't want you to turn away from Jesus. There's nothing greater than Jesus. There's nothing, you say, what's deeper than this? What's more glorious than this? But have you, have you shifted? Maybe you have. Maybe you're realizing that today. I'm thankful that you're realizing that. Own up to it. Ask God for help today. Are you moving away from the hope held out in the gospel? Don't. The good news of who God is in Christ, the announcement, the proclamation of life in Christ Jesus, the gospel, don't move away from it. So many other things and voices, but listen, Jesus stands above them all. He does. He stands above them all. He's standing above all of those voices and all of those options. He's doing it through Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. So hold on to it. Have a well-worn path in your Bibles to these passages. Run here again and again. Remember who Jesus is and recognize what Jesus did for you. Never move away from it. Never move away from this. So like a clay, like clay on a potter's wheel, we spoke of that earlier. Like clay on a potter's wheel, these verses help center us again and again so we will treasure Jesus more and more. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your kindness and your goodness expressed to us in Jesus. Just a few verses into this hymn, this poem, and our minds are already blown. And as we continue to read about who Jesus is, we're, we're humbled. We're amazed. As we continue to read what Jesus has accomplished for us, Again, we're just, we're humbled. Lord, we pray that you would help us. For those who have embraced Jesus as King, as Savior, help each one of us to remain steadfast, to not move away from the hope of the gospel, to take that warning seriously. And Lord, I pray for anyone here today who has not embraced Jesus as King and has been maybe considering who Jesus is, that the reality of who Jesus is would come so alive that they would look to him as, as Savior, that they would own up to their sin, and that they'd trust him as Lord. We love you. Keep us centered as a church on Jesus, we pray. Amen.